Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015. It's the Hockey Pediocast with your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey Pediocast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and join me for this uh, mega, super special Stanley Cup final preview. Is my good buddy Andrew Berkshire. Andrew, what's going on, man? Not much. Uh, I think it's always mega super special when we're together, Dimitri. It is, but this this show uh, is especially special. It's. Uh, I remember last year we did it, did this, and you know, it feels like everyone, every podcast, and every writer is is doing some sort or some form of a preview for this series because there are so many eyeballs on it, and it is really the only thing left going on this postseason. So it's really tough to kind of differentiate yourself and and actually provide some sort of analysis or or maybe thoughts on the series that haven't already just been regurgitated on, on many different platforms. But I remember last year you and I did the uh, the Caps Vegas Golden Knights preview, and I was really proud of how it turned out because we pointed to how the Vegas forecheck had been just crippling all the Western Conference teams and how Washington was kind of uniquely suited to combat it with how their centers came back to to break out of the zone themselves and not necessarily relying on a defenseman so much. And we saw that play out before our very eyes and Washington used that to, uh, amongst many other reasons to, to beat them and win the Stanley cup finally. And so, uh, hopefully we'll be able to do something similar this year to get fans ready for this series, whether it's something as big as that, or maybe some sort of a wrinkle in the series here or there, that they haven't thought about before. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of people seem to think this series is, already decided like have you seen anybody pick the blues i haven't really i've seen and and i don't want to spoil my pick either uh because we'll do that later in the show but i I think a lot of people believe that it'll be a close series but i I, Mm -hmm. it it does seem like it's a a heavy majority leaning towards the bruins and considering how this postseason has gone and how uh hockey playoffs have conditioned us in years past i think that's probably a good sign for the blues yeah, no, no kidding. Hey, I mean, based on how I've made my picks this year, um, whoever I pick is going to lose. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's the main thing. I think I don't know how you did. I went, I think, two for eight in the first round, and then my bracket was just destroyed. 
Yeah, it was pretty bad. I mean, I had I had the the lightning against the sharks in the finals, so I mean, it looked horrible there for a while, and then the sharks had that game seven comeback, and I was like, oh, who knows? Maybe I might be able to salvage this a little bit. But uh, yeah, it's been it's been pretty bleak. But I think everyone across the board has been in such a similar boat, and it was and round one was so wacky and unpredictable that I. I didn't even feel bad about it. Like, yeah, you know, no, people that take no. this stuff too seriously and think it's a mark of, or, or, or some sort of an indictment against your abilities to analyze this game. It's, uh, it just basically flipping coins at this point. Yeah. And I don't remember uh, who tweeted it. I think it might've been Michael Lopez. He was doing like the math on it. And it was like, if you assume a 10% gap in talent between two teams, which is like a massive talent gap in a, seven game series the worst team will win four times Mm. which is crazy (laughs) so like it's all fun to like predict and i think what you're kind of looking for is who's more likely to win and i know this is something that people get on uh, dom lucision about a lot because he does his uh his picks by percentages and he'll Mm. pick somebody at like 52 percent everyone will be like you're wrong and he's like well no i was only 52% 52% wrong <laughs> and it's it's unsatisfying and it seems like you're trying to squirrel your way out of uh, what you picked but it it's the way that probabilities work I mean just because somebody's more likely to win doesn't mean that they will win uh, teams going against the odds and uh, being victorious I, I think that's what makes sports great you know I mean the the Cavs in the NBA finals a few years ago that was like the best NBA finals of the last like 10 years yeah that was phenomenal. Not to, you know, trash Golden State, which are you know, the most, probably the most amazing amazing uh, North American professional sports team right now. But uh, it was cool to see them lose for once. It was. Um, and that's a whole other debate about sort of whether it's good, or whether you prefer parity or whether you'd prefer some sort of a juggernaut like that, that everyone tries to, to beat an up NBA. And obviously the, the pro of, of the latter is that when you build up a team like that, then when they eventually get overtaken by someone, it leads to a bunch of great stories and, and fan interest. But I, as you were talking, I was just thinking, I was like, man, I, I, I really hope to, to only be 52% wrong a hundred percent of the time. That's uh <laughs> that's, that's, that's one of my new mottos. Um, well, and, and I will say this as unpredictable as round one was, it felt like we did not necessarily return to normalcy, but for the most part, if you look at how the the series played out after, and this Stanley cup final we have, I mean, you could make an argument that the blues and the Bruins were, two of the best most dominant teams in like the final half of the season uh yep. especially in the final 25 30 games and and you know in the conference final if you include the sharks and the hurricanes those were four of the top seven teams by expected goals i think for the year so it, it, it round one is still so fresh in our mind because it just was so crazy and whenever a historically great 62 win team gets swept everyone's gonna still be thinking about that but it, it we've kind of gotten back to the idea that regular season dominance or particularly five on five dominance over the course of 82 games does mean something and does illustrate a team's competency. And that's good to see. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, we, we don't want to get too deep into the parody versus dynasty debate, mm-hmm. but uh, I think overall, like you said, this playoffs started out weird, but has, has kind of normalized. And I think a lot of that weirdness does have to do with that four game sweep in the first round of the Tampa Bay lightning. And, you know, we can look at uh, data all day long, but I think a lot of it had to do with injuries and, uh, as it always does in the playoff series, goaltending. Yes. Yeah, certainly. Well, okay, so there's any number of ways. I've got a list of, like, five or six, um, you know, keys to the to this series or, or matchups to watch for. What? I'll let you kick us off since you're our guest. What interests you the most about this series from a stylistic or X's and O's perspective? 
I think the biggest thing for me is watching the Blues throughout these playoffs and, you know, throughout the last half of the season is how excellent they've excellent of a job they've done adjusting against teams mm-hmm. uh, they're, they're a team that throughout the regular season was not very good off the rush uh, defending attacking whatever it was kind of their main weakness and when I was writing for uh, the free press t- previewing the series for the Jets I was like okay listen the Jets acquired Kevin Hayes they've got Mark Shifley they've got Nick Ehlers these guys are the only guys in the team that really attack off the rush successfully they're going to be the keys to the series against the Blues if they can attack off the rush they have a chance to win this despite Winnipeg, you know, having a good record but not being a great team this year. And lo and behold, Paul Maurice really focused on attacking off the rush and pushed that series probably a little bit further than it should have. And I think Winnipeg played uh, really well in the playoffs, far better than I expected them to. But uh, the Blues were just the better team this year. And they they did attack off the rush and uh, exploit them in that way. But as the playoffs have gone on, especially against San Jose, uh, the Blues have really tightened up there. And they, they're a team that really excels off the cycle and off the forecheck. And the Sharks were outdoing them in both those areas. So they shifted their focus to controlling the rush game, limiting the Sharks' uh, creativity in entering the zone and then creating chances on their own. And that's how they beat the Sharks. So it, it's really interesting to see a team adjust the way that they attack, the way that they defend, what they're focusing on, how they're attacking and and managed to do that in a short seven game series to take advantage of another team that that's really interesting to me so i wonder if they can find a way to take away boston's advantage in these playoffs which has been absolute complete domination in front of the net <laughs> yeah uh in front of rask and in front of whatever goalie they're facing the the differential they have in high danger scoring chances is just completely absurd everywhere else on the ice they're they've only been okay but for, for starters, Rask has almost a 90% high danger save percentage according to Sport Logic, which is over 10% higher than expected. Mm. Bennington is at average, which is like 78 and a right. half. Right. So like there's a huge gap there. If Boston's able to continue exploiting that, they're they're gonna win the series. Like if Rask continues performing the way he is, which is probably likely, I guess maybe not with a big uh, step off or a break there, but mm. You know, if he can get his head in the game again, like he has been all playoffs, and Boston continues to dominate that inner slot area, they're they're going to win the series. It's crazy. Over half of their goals have come from the inner slot, uh, whereas the Blues less than half. So the Blues have more ability to score from the outside than the Bruins do, but the Bruins are just so dominant in that inner slot. So it's offensively and defensively, the Blues have got to take it to another level there. Yeah, it's weird because I haven't looked at their. Uh playoff totals i'm not going to put too much stock into whatever under 20 games they've played so far this postseason in terms of shot profiles and stuff like that but even over the course of the regular season like this is a team that very clearly prioritizes that idea of shot quality or particularly getting the puck into those dangerous areas but they still also dominate the quantity as well and that just speaks to i guess like how well-rounded and and how lethal this team can be at five on five from the blues perspective um I completely agree. That's probably one of the best things you can say about a playoff team. It's the, the that ability to go up against many different styles and 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 kind of acclimate to it and then do it better than that team. And and as that Shark series went on, I think it's very easy to kind of point at Martin Jones and laugh and be like, "Oh my God, he just let in another soft goal." And, and there were certainly many instances where that happened as that series went along. But it's pretty clear, especially in the final but two or I guess not in game four and game five and six though, especially like the, the, the blues just 
were such a well-oiled machine and they were just completely dictating the flow of that game and there was obviously the injuries to the Sharks played a role in that as well but there was not much they could get going offensively and especially those top two lines of theirs were really neutralized by what the Blues were trying to do and and one thing that um I make fun of Pierre Maguire a lot for his commentary on this show, but one thing that I thought he did a really good job of illustrating in that Western Conference Final was how especially Ryan O'Reilly was doing a great job of basically playing the role of a defenseman to neutralize the Sharks uh, off the rush attack, especially when some of the Blues defensemen would try to pinch in to keep uh, offensive zone opportunities going. You'd see Ryan O'Reilly coming back and just playing the role of of, of a defenseman and doing it better than most forwards can. So um, it, both of these teams do uh, a remarkable number of things well, and I guess that's why they are still... Uh, alive and playing for the Stanley Cup final and that's what's going to make this such a fascinating series where there's very few weaknesses on both of these teams to really exploit yeah it's it's really interesting it might be one of those things that like it's real tight every single game I mean it would be great if we got like seven overtime games wouldn't it mm. I mean not for our sleep right well I mean you're on the west coast it doesn't but these matter. games will be starting pretty early I think right like probably yeah uh, 80 I think Eastern. they usually start eight eastern yeah. right so mm. yeah it won't be too bad mm. but yeah it, I, I would love to see a really tight series I'd love to see game seven overtime in the Stanley Cup finals I, I feel like that's something that hasn't happened since the 70s or something like that mm. so I, I'd love to see that especially since I have no skin in the game and I'm not going to be stressed about it um, can I be a Martin Jones defender for a second? Yeah, Which go is, for it. Sounds crazy. That's a, that's a crazy island to be on, but go for it. I know, I know. But, and you know what? He turned into a pumpkin at the end of the series for sure. He, he, the same as he was for most of the regular season. But the Sharks were carried by Jones through the first two series. Yeah. Like, it, it's crazy how... Well, in the, in the second half of the Vegas series. Uh, yes, the second yeah, half. Yeah. The first half, he was bad. Yeah. But, like, let's just compare, for argument's sake... Uh, the San Jose Sharks and the Boston Bruins, right? So the Boston Bruins allow the fewest high danger scoring chances against per 60 minutes in the playoffs at 4.87. That's like nothing. Under five is crazy. Uh, the Sharks were the most at 9.19. Like the gap between them is just insane. And the Bruins are also fantastic at limiting passes to the slot. So like you're not getting a lot of pre-shot movement on those. Uh, the Sharks, not so much. So, like, Jones was really covering for a lot of holes from, like, game four of the Vegas series onto the midway through the Blues series. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, he, he turned into himself at the end, but and it was a hot streak, but he's definitely a guy that I would not blame for them going out in, no, uh, certainly not. in the conference finals there. I, it, it's so strange because you look at him during the season, and you're like, he's not good. But as people always say, goalies are a little bit of voodoo, and a hot streak can happen whenever – and I guess that kind of, in a way, brings me to Tuka Rask, who aside from the great defense, uh, I, I think Tuka Rask has kind of been a bad goalie for like four years. And all of a sudden, he's back to his peak performance level. And it, it this hot streak couldn't have come at a better time. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's certainly, I mean, there was definitely for a couple of years there, uh, people are kind of slow to adjust to a, a new level of player performance, especially when a guy has been considered to be a star for a long time and, and his numbers were progressively dipping. And that was something I was like pretty alarmed by. I think, you know, they, the Bruins did a great job this year. They brought in Yarrow Halak. They trusted him to play pretty much 50% of the games and they didn't rely on Rask. I believe he played 
45 or so regular season games, which is like the lowest he's played since he became a full-time starter. And he looks fresh. He's turned back the clock. Obviously, this is a hot streak, and I don't think anyone thinks that he's all of a sudden a true talent 942 save percentage goalie moving forward. But I also haven't necessarily seen anything to suggest that, you know, he's just kind of being super lucky and 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 he won't continue to play well and now obviously if the performance dips a little bit that's a different story but you know it, it is fascinating I tweeted this the other day and, and a lot of people took it the wrong way they thought I was implying that the Bruins are just kind of this like lucky unicorn that only benefits th- from this where it's like most teams that make it this far in the postseason generally have ridiculously good goaltending throughout and that's a yep. big driver for why they're here I think the fact that Jordan Bennington, who has been really good, and we can talk more about him, only has a 9-14 save percentage for this postseason and has been roughly league average in terms of what we'd expect uh, from his performances postseason. And the fact that the Blues have still made it this far is more of an aberration than what Rask has done. But, you know, you look at the, t- the three uh, postseason runs the, Ras- the Blue- Blues Bruins have made uh, over the past decade or so in 2011, 2013, and 2019, and uh, it's just three, like, insanely dominant goalie performances. And it's funny how, um, you know, we, do, we always talk about how they're so big and physical and tough and defensively sound. And then we, like, conveniently overlook the years where they either didn't make the playoffs or lost in round one or lost in round two pretty handily. And, and we, we just pretend that, you know, there's some sort of a mismatch there between the goaltending and all the other factors. And it's pretty clear that those things are all uh, linked together. And the goaltending performance is a pretty big driver of postseason success for all teams. Yeah, absolutely. And and I feel like the one thing that concerns me about the Bruins heading into the finals, and <clears throat> I don't mean like uh, concerns me as uh, ho- hoping they don't win or anything, because I obviously hope they don't win. But uh, if if I if I was a Bruins fan, the one thing that would concern me a little bit, uh, aside from Rask's performance being a little bit too crazy high end, and you look at the history of teams that rode hot goaltending into the playoffs, and a lot of times that kind of falls apart. You know, you look at Pecorine, which well, that started falling apart well, in the conference. Mark Andre like, Fleury last year. Mark Andre Fleury, yeah. you know, uh, it. it usually starts to fall off a little bit in the Stanley Cup final. Now, part of that could be because they're facing the other best team. Part of that could be just the attrition of it all. But uh, I also look at, you know, and it's a short sample size, and part of the reason why you make it to the end is luck. You have to be lucky and good, and the Bruins are both. But they're a full 2% higher in PDO than anybody else in these playoffs. They're at 104 PDO, uh, according to Corsica, which is crazy. And that's that's all situations. At five on five, the two highest PDO teams are the Bruins and Blues. So it's yeah. like you you have to get things going your For way sure. in order to make it this far. But I do wonder specifically the Bruins power play has been so red hot that if that cools off even a little bit, is there like a little bit of belief that you know trickles out? Mm. You know, and I feel like the Bruins are an experienced team, and maybe that doesn't happen to them because you know they they've been there before and they know how to get through a gut check time, whatever. And actually they've been pretty unlucky in terms of shooting at five on five. So it could be that the power play falls off and they're five on be fine. But I would say like there is enough going right for the Bruins in terms of luck that I could see things not going their way in the final and the blues and Bruins playing an even series and the Bruins losing despite that. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. Like I think, over the course of six or seven games or whatever, like anything can happen and you could have 
the best process possible and you could just hit the post a bunch of times or just miss the net on, yep. on opportunities you would have otherwise converted. But like the I thing, mean, ask the lightning. <laughs> exactly. But the thing that would give me uh, faith or confidence if I was uh, a Bruins fan or a Bruins supporter that they'll be fine even if, they, if the percentages drop off a bit is sort of the process, especially at power on the power play where mm-hmm. I, w- I wouldn't necessarily say like they've been scoring a lot of goals off of like wild point shots that have been getting tipped in and bouncing in off a bunch of legs. Like it's a lot of Patrice Bergeron and David Pasternak shooting grade A scoring chances with the goalie moving all over the place and getting flustered. And I think the puck movement and what they're trying to accomplish on the power play has been so good and so lethal that if they keep doing that, they're going to keep generating a ton of grade A chances and considering the shooters involved, uh, barring some sort of injury or horrible luck over a short period of time, they'll probably still continue to score goals. Like they might not go 17 for 50 or whatever they've gone so far this postseason, but I feel pretty confident saying that their power play is going to be just fine, even if uh, they regress a little bit. Yeah, I mean, this is the very thinnest of, yeah, of criticisms, yes. right? It, yeah, yeah. I mean, saying a team that makes the Stanley Cup Finals has been a little bit too lucky is like, okay, that's every single Stanley Cup Final yeah. <laughs> appearance of all time. But uh, yeah, I, th- I think that's the one thing that like the, the Blues can kind of key on maybe a little bit. That and trying to limit the <laughs> inner slot dominance, just like... Hope the Bruins stop getting all the all the bounces because they they definitely had their fair share these playoffs. But man, I, I think I look at across the board and the Blues are a good team. The Bruins and the Blues kind of got to this the same sort of way. They're both teams that attack in a varied way. They're both teams that you know limit chances very effectively. Uh, they're the two teams that have allowed the fewest high danger chances against per 60 in the entire uh, playoffs. So what tips the scales one way or the other? And I look at control of the passing game hmm. and the Bruins are just so much better at it. And part of that is going to be, you know, the Patrice Bergeron factor because he's just a pass blocking machine and his positioning is so f- absolutely absurd. Part of it's just going to be like the size of Zdeno Chara. It's just tough to pass through him. But their system for years now has just been absurdly good at limiting passing to the slot and finding each other in the slot in the offensive zone. And and part of that could be roster consistency. You know, that core has been together forever, especially that top line. They always know where each other are. You know, they're one of the few teams that can consistently generate one-timers from below uh, the the face-off dots which is kind of crazy. I mean, you think how how high of a chance of scoring you get when you're taking a one-timer from below the face-off dot. Mm. Unless it's blocked, like you've got the goalie moving, you've yeah. got extreme speed. It's it's a tough one. So, they're they're a team that's just so dangerous and it seems like they've just been getting more in sync as the playoffs have gone on. They have. Okay, here's here's uh it's not necessarily related to that topic, but in terms of um, previewing the series and sort of a matchup I'm looking for and kind of storylines. Something that I've already started to see manifest itself and I think as this series gets going is going to be one of my bigger annoyances with how these two teams are talked about is this idea that the Blues and the Bruins playing in a Stanley Cup final reinforces the notion that you have to be big and physical to be successful in the postseason and at this time of year 
that's what matters and pete the had this quote about that and i saw it pass around a lot and people were using that as proof that that's the case and i guess sports are sort of this ultimate kind of like rorschach test or whatever where you just two people can look at it and and you see different things and you kind of see what you want to see or you go into it believing something and it kind of reinforces that and i certainly think you and i and, and people who think similarly to us aren't infallible by any means and we can sometimes fall victim to this as well where you have this certain idea that's rooted in your head and you keep just trying to perpetuate it and trying to make stuff work around it but i think if you see someone talking about how the bruins and the blues are these two extremely uh you know heavy hockey physical teams that are successful only because of that i think you should be skeptical about what their agenda is and why they're saying that because i don't know if people have checked but these aren't the big bad Bruins that people think about. Like their three best defensemen are five nine, five nine, and Charlie McAvoy is very, very, very generously listed at six foot tall. And yeah, he's there's no way he's six feet tall. Yeah, but he's listed like, as that, and I'm like, uh, that's not probably true. I think he's probably like yeah, five ten. So that's I've, like there's so many. That's like David Darnay being lift, listed at five uh, seven or whatever, and I'm five seven, and I I've met him before, and he's like, well, not met him, but seen him before, mm. and he's like two two and a half inches shorter than me easily. Yep. Yeah, and so it's this idea that like I I think these two teams do play it physically, especially the Blues, but it is kind of it goes back to that idea where we talk about the difference between just like throwing hits for the sake of being physical and throwing hits and sort of this functional physicality of of using it to leverage the opponent and to cause turnovers and to affect what they're trying to do on the breakout and a great example is what the blues were doing to san jose defensemen especially poor justin braun i feel like he was really happy that series was over like it felt like anytime he went back to get the puck uh one of sanquist steen or barbashev was pretty much just living inside of his jersey and 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 they weren't just kind of just throwing hits. They were they were in his head and they were causing turnovers. And even though Carlson scored a couple goals there and then obviously was injured towards the end of the series, they kind of made him hear kind of the footsteps of them coming and, and, and using that as a forecheck tool. And so both of these teams are just so relentless in their puck pursuit and they just hound puck carriers and they really give you very minimal time to operate and to breathe and, and very little space to, to maneuver with. And I think that is much more important than sort of the the physical contact or the carnage factor as doc emmerich likes to say and, and which i'm sure we'll hear about a ton in this series yeah I, like you said functional physicality is absolutely important and man, the bruins i know everybody likes to think like they are they are the bad bruins but they're not the big bad bruins the small uh, bad bruins yeah, they're the small bad bruins and with one giant guy yes They've well and carlo's huge too end. but he uses his yeah, reach Carlo- much more than actual like bone crunching hits yeah, and I think you could say the same thing about Zayn Chara unless you get him angry, right? Like, for the most part, he's not destroying guys. He might hold you against the boards or, like, throw you down, but he's not running around trying to take guys' heads off. He'll get in scrums, though. That That's definitely a big deal. But, you know, they've got a few guys like Noel Akiari or uh, Sean Corrali who are kind of tough and David Backus who thinks he's a fighter now. But for the most part, you know, like Patrice Bergeron, 6'1", uh, Krejci, 6 you know, Brad Marchand is probably around 5'9". Pasternak, I don't think, is too large either. And even if he was, he's not that physical. And he's six foot. So, like, th- this isn't a team that's huge. And like you pointed out with their defense, like, they're all – most of the good ones are pretty tiny. Yep. It, it, this isn't a, a, a big, large team, but they are physical. 
For sure. They are. And I think that's maybe where people get tripped up is that the teams that push the needle physically, people see as big, especially if they have a reputation as being big. Mm-hmm. And the Blues are pretty big. They're a pretty big team. But I they don't are, think but they all they're... skate. They all skate. Yeah, that's the thing, mm-hmm. right? Like even Patrick Maroon, you know, who is like a prototypical like uh, lower tier power forward. Yeah. I don't think he's overtly physical for the most part. Like he'll get in front of the net, but like he's not a guy that like crunches guys in the forecheck very often. He does it once in a while, but most of their guys are just good hockey players who happen to be large. Yeah. You know, and if you can get a great hockey player who also has good reach, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. But like we've said for years and years, chasing the big bruiser is just not a, a smart idea. I think both these teams succeed based on the quality of their depth, you know, mm-hmm. uh, not just, you know, Bruins, the Bruins have that top line that's the best in the NHL, but their their depth players have been fantastic in this in these playoffs. And, you know, a lot of people forget about David Krejci. I didn't even realize he had 73 points this year. Yeah. You know, he's been fantastic in the playoffs as always. Uh, the, both these teams just have a lot of players who contribute at, you know, better than expected for where they're slotted in the in the lineup. Uh, St. Louis Blues, one of the guys that's caught my eye consistently is uh, Sundquist. He's been phenomenal. Yeah. No, I mean, that entire fourth line obviously has been has been a revelation. And all three of those guys, uh, including Barbashev and Steen, especially Barbashev, I mean, like – they're they're fourth liners by by name and and in terms of ice time but like they all those guys have skill and all those guys can do stuff and when they cause those turnovers off the forecheck they can actually convert them into goals and and you're not going to necessarily bank on them driving the offense or contributing every single game in that regard but all of that is kind of found money and at least they have a fighting chance to do so and and i think that's a great point about the depth in this series where there are so few weak links. Like there's obviously the top end of both of these rosters are very, very good and drive a ton of the team's success. But as you go down the lineup, when you're looking and, and trying to kind of prognosticate ahead to how these teams are going to match up and, and what areas you can target, there are so few of those weaknesses where you could go like, oh, we're going to target this this side of the third pairing or we're going to target this fourth line. Like all of these guys can play and all of them can move and all of them can at least chip in a little bit offensively. And so I think that's what's going to make this such a fascinating series. And, and it's going to be so fun to watch just because there's going to be so few of those dead shifts where nothing's going on. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's going to be interesting. I mean, I, I hope it's not too tactical. Like if it's a, if it's a hyper defensive series, I think that's the thing that I'm more worried about the takeaway being mm. um, from this playoffs is like, you see these, all the high power offensive teams, for the most part, went out early. Uh, Vegas, well, Vegas is a good defensive team as well, but Toronto, Tampa Bay, uh, Calgary, they went down real early, real easily, except for Toronto. So the Blues and Bruins are both unbelievably good defensively. I I worry that the takeaway is to shift things back towards defensive hockey and thinking that's the future again and we see like the goals start to dip again because we've seen like the last three years or so things are shifting in the right direction in terms Mm -hmm. of like excitement for the league and i i worry that if this series is very defensive you know a bunch of 2-1 games and not much scoring very tactical that we're gonna see a shift back to that that's that's my big fear 
Certainly. I mean, think about how differently the next couple of years following 2011 would have been if the Canucks had won the Stanley Cup with the Sedins as their best mm-hmm. players as opposed to the Bruins sort of with Marshan just just punching them in the face and, and all of this stuff and, and all the story kind of side plot storylines that came from that series with people going like, see, like the Bruins proved you need to be tough and physical and, and then teams signing a bunch of guys and trading for guys just for the sake of trying to match up with that as opposed to realizing that there's some other stuff going on. For sure, I think clearly how this series is going to play out with everyone watching and obviously the team that wins, everyone's going to try to sort of model themselves after that or, or try to galaxy brain this and think about how they can kind of copy whatever they did that was so successful about them and i think there's going to be a lot of uh kind of red herrings or or or, or thing or people missing the point of what makes these teams special yeah and oh speaking of marchand who's who's he gonna punch in the head this series should we take bets i'm i'm gonna hope he's not gonna punch anyone in the head i hope it's gonna be this is gonna be a nice well-played series okay but realistically realistically I don't know. I mean, is there anyone on the Blues that's a candidate? They do have a bunch of guys who are like involved. Like Schwartz. Yeah, I could see that. I could see him trying to get in Braden Shen's kitchen. I feel like the other thing is like the Blues kind of have not on the same level, but David Perron is kind of like Marchand in a lot of ways. Yeah, I could he's see him a little, getting up he's to stuff for sure. Yeah, yeah, he's he's gonna get up to stuff for sure. I, I think this is gonna be a pretty chippy series. You know who I hope is the the MVP of this series just for uh, for Leafs fans to have some happiness in uh, in this series is uh, Tyler Bozak because mm. it seems like they're as a whole like there's some people who are miffed about it or whatever or bitter but most people seem to be pretty happy for him that he uh, you know had his job taken by Tavares and then now he's in the Stanley Cup Finals with his new team which is pretty crazy uh, the funny thing is he's against the Bruins again anyway yeah. Well, he's been good. I mean, that uh, that entire line with him, Thomas, and Maroon has been... I think they've played the most minutes of any uh, forward line still in the playoffs this year. And obviously, that I mean, that just speaks to both their effectiveness but and the fact that they've been kept together as a result. And Craig Brube hasn't necessarily been putting all those guys in a blender. But um, yeah, they've been good and, and kind of this like uh, a bit of a throwback third line. I, yeah, I had this list of like most annoying recurring themes that we're going to hear from the commentators and from people talking about this series. And I wonder if you have some yourself. My first contribution to the list is uh, Rob Thomas's age. I feel like oh, watching yes, these NBC sure. broadcasts, like, oh my god, like we get it. He's young. This is impressive. He's playing great. It's like every single shift. It's like, can you imagine what this guy is gonna look like two years from now? It's like uh, he'll be good. I believe it. He's a top <laughs> prospect. He's doing. Yeah, he's he's awesome. People have been talking about him for a couple of years now. I know. We, we always knew he was going to be good. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I hope it's not as mu- as bad as eighteen-year-old uh, Sam Bennett. It's not, but it's like there's. It it's NBC's really been jamming it down our throats. So. Uh, yeah. The other one is uh, Jordan Bennington's puck handling. Oh yeah. Commentators, yeah. commentators just do this stuff. Like they get so obsessed with these goalies that can get out of the net and handle the puck, and then like every time. The Bruins dump it in, and Jordan Bennington doesn't trip over himself and fall and lead to a goal against. You're going to hear the commentators just lose their minds about how effective <laughs> he is in neutralizing the forecheck. It's like just just stay in your net. Like the the, the risk heavily outweighs the reward. Just please, just stop. It, you know what, Martin Martin Broder ruined it for everyone. He yeah. he was he was so good at it that everyone felt like they had to do it, and 
every commentator now has to point it out whenever a goalie doesn't Mike Smith it. It's yeah, that's that's annoying. I feel like there's definitely going to be a lot of uh, focus on Brad Marchand, mm-hmm. especially from uh, Canadian broadcasters, I mean, including yourself. Yes, absolutely myself. I'm going to be focusing on him and looking for every little dirtbag movie pulls and how many skates he or how many sticks he snaps with his skates. Uh, I'm looking forward to uh, <clears throat> hopefully Kyle Bukowskis getting on there and asking him a question again. <laughs> Did you know that uh, these two teams played 49 years ago? In, no, I did not. Wow, I mean, it's uh, I I I think you're gonna get w- very well versed with this idea that uh, the last time the Blues were here, they played the Bruins in the Stanley Cup Final. This is a, a rematch that's been in 49 years in the making. Wow, but uh, nobody's coached by Scotty Bowman this time, I guess. Well, but a little little known fact that was uh, Zidane Ochara actually played in that series. <laughs> yeah, I believe it. I mean, he was a young whippersnapper back then, only 6'2". Yeah, he's grown a little bit since then. Um, <laughs> let's take a quick break here, here from a sponsor, and then we're going to... Uh, I've got Man, I've got so much stuff here that I want to talk about. We're going to try to jam in in the next 25 to 30 minutes. Sounds good. Sponsoring today's episode of the Hockey PDO cast is SeatGeek. Do you ever feel like ticketing websites can make getting to the event itself difficult on purpose? If you're like me... I'm sure there's been times in your life in the past where you wanted to go to a sporting event or a concert, but you ultimately just didn't want to deal with the logistics of actually going about finding the tickets and getting them and paying for them and dealing with all that. And so you just didn't go and you might have missed out on a really fun night out and a great opportunity. And and that's a shame, but that's ultimately how that industry has been run for a long time now because, you know, it's so big and it's been so... um, specialized that they just don't don't really care about the customer experience there's been only a few sites and they've been able to get away with that because they knew that just because of supply and demand you had to go there if for your ticketing needs and and it didn't matter to them but now that SeatGeek's around they've completely changed the game because they've proven that there is a better way to do that SeatGeek does all the work for you they scour the web they find all the tickets They pull all of those millions of tickets together from different locations into one place where it's easy to look at them. And then they rate each of those deals on a scale of one to 10. So you look at that interactive seat map that they have and you basically just look at the details and you look for the green dots, which indicate a good deal. You stay away from the red dots, which indicates an overpriced deal. And you know that um, you're getting the best deals. And every purchase with SeatGeek is fully guaranteed so you can shop for your tickets with them on, uh, with full confidence knowing that what you're paying for is what you're going to get. If you don't believe me, just take a look for yourself at uh, their reviews in the App Store. Uh, they've got over 50,000 five-star reviews now and it's a lot of people sort of just parroting the same stuff I'm saying here which is that SeatGeek has changed the game by saving you time, money, and effort when it comes to buying tickets. I've got the SeatGeek app on my phone and I've found that it is by far the fastest and easiest way to find tickets, whether it is a sporting event, whether it's a hockey game and you're trying to get in some postseason action while we still have it, uh, whether it's basketball playoffs, whether it's tennis coming up here in the summer, whether it's baseball, whether it's football in the fall, there's they've got everything, whether it's concerts, uh, you're going to music festivals, you're going to an actual individual show like I am with the Vampire Weekend uh, this late summer, I guess early fall, they've got it all. And it's incredibly easy to use. And honestly, in just a couple of clicks and a couple of minutes, you'll be good to go. So it really is that simple. And as my listener, if for whatever reason you're still not completely sold, and I can't believe they 
that would be the case but let's pretend one of you out there uh still is kind of on the fence and could go either way seeky's gonna give you ten dollars off your first purchase just for listening to today's episode of the hockey pdo cast all you have to do to get in on that action is just use our promo code download the seeky cap today and use the promo code pdo for ten dollars off your first purchase that's promo code pdo for ten dollars off your first purchase now let's get back to the show okay one area that I'm interested in, and we've talked about the power plays, but we also talked about how these two teams are so similar and how what a lot of the, what they do um, kind of replicates each other, and, and that'll lead to some fascinating X's and O's stuff. The power plays, uh, obviously the Bruins have been uh, much more successful, and they've been incredibly lethal and scored a ridiculous amount of goals, and, and that might come down a little bit. But just in terms of when you watch them and what they try to accomplish on the power play, uh they are very different and i think that is an interesting wrinkle to watch in this series where something that i guess i just have didn't wasn't watching a ton of blues hockey throughout the regular season or really focusing in on their power plays as much as i have been this postseason but they run this set where tarasenko lines up on his strong side and he basically what they're trying to accomplish is we're going to get the puck to Vladimir Tarasenko and then he's going to take a wrist shot and we're just betting on the fact that his wrist shot is better than the goalie's ability to stop the puck and as that shark series went along we saw that he was much better at Martin Jones at sh- he was much better at shooting the puck than Martin Jones was at stopping it and he just beat him clean a number of times especially on the power play with those wrist shots and I just love that because we see that so rarely in today's game and we're going to see that so rarely with this with this Bruins power play where they much more traditionally try to set up a bunch of one-timers and and get the puck moving east-west to not let the goalie get set and get comfortable and with the Blues they just have this kind of throwback where it's like we have just this one guy and we're betting that he's better than than your guy and and we're going to go head-to-head here and, and see who wins and and Vlad Tarasenko is so good that he generally comes out on top in that matchup yeah I mean yeah it's tough to bet against Tarasenko um What's strange to me, like looking at their power play numbers, is you're right, they do things differently, but in terms of like actual volume, it's pretty similar. Mm. Uh, the Bruins generate 54 scoring chances per 60 on the power play, the Blues are 52. You know, uh, they both primarily attack off the cycle. Um, what's in one thing that's really interesting to me is that the Bruins are actually pretty effective at attacking off the rush on the power play, which is very weird. You know, like it's not something that teams do very often. I mean, most of the focus on gaining the zone is just uh, getting into the zone and setting up, right? But the Bruins like to j- just keep going in with speed and finding ways to attack off the rush on the power play, despite you know the aggressive defensive stance that teams take at their own blue line. So that's something I would watch in this series. And the other thing is. Uh, the Bruins have actually given up more shorthanded chances per 60 than any other team in the playoffs. And little known fact, they were all to Boone Jenner. <laughs> he had like six yeah. of them in that one game. It was obscene. Yeah, it, it's it's crazy. But yeah. I, I wonder if that's something the Blues can take advantage of because they've got some pretty talented forwards uh, like offensively who can play defense. Mm-hmm. So that that's somewhat interesting to me. Um, outside of that... Well, let's, let's, uh, let's stick the, with that off-the-rush point that you okay, made there. I want to get into that a little bit more because... I did notice that as well, and, and and I was watching the NBC broadcast for the Eastern Conference Final, and Brian Boucher made a great point of pointing out how a couple times um, the Bruins' power play didn't let the Hurricanes' penalty kill get set because 
they quickly came in and, and generated an off the rush chance where you know there was a couple tip shots there and 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 they were trying to get the goalie moving without the defense getting set first and i've always that's something that i've been thinking about a lot lately because we've certainly made advancements in terms of optimizing power plays obviously with you know using four forwards and one defenseman instead of the traditional three and two setup and and I've long been beating the drum of you should just play your best five guys in your top power play unit for nearly the full two minutes because it's not actually that physically taxing if you're just set up in the offensive zone the entire time. And, and this idea that you need to have two separate power play sets who play evenly like the Leafs do is just so silly to me. And and so there's certain stuff like that. But I've been thinking, like, especially for some teams, like let's say the Oilers, whose best player is Connor McDavid or or the abs with Nathan McKinnon, although McKinnon's set wrist shot is a little bit better and more lethal. Like, wouldn't it make sense to cater your power play around that type of a quick attack approach as, as opposed to like at five on five, all you do is attack off the rush and, and try to use your speed. And then suddenly you get this power play opportunity and this high leverage scoring chance. And instead of continuing to do that, you go, okay, you know what we're going to do now? We're going to slow it down. We're going to let the other team load up defensively. We're going to let four guys get in front of the goalie. And then we're going to yep. kind of pass it around on the outside in a circle for two minutes and take some point shots. And that idea to me has always just been so counterintuitive. Now I know the pushback's going to be, well, the opposing penalty kill isn't necessarily, they're not going to be like out for checking and they're not going to be out trying to create scoring chances themselves. They're going to naturally come back and load up defensively. But there's obviously opportunities that present themselves, especially when the puck leaves the zone. And and so I'd love to see teams do what the Bruins have been doing this postseason, where if you, especially, you know, if you're starting the power play outside the offensive zone or whatever, you quickly get in there and try to create something within the first 10 to 15 seconds. And then obviously if that doesn't work, you try to retain the puck and then get into that more traditional cycle and passing around the point. Yeah, I, I think this is, it's one of those things where in order to generate them consistently, you kind of have to dare your the other like the penalty kill to try to create something mm-hmm. instead of be conservative. So you you have to have like extreme confidence in your own defensive structure of your power play players and also your goaltender, which clearly right now the Boston Bruins do. And, and they're one of the few teams that I, I could say, like definitively their best offensive players are also their best defensive players. Right. So I think it definitely caters to them to be able to take those risks on the power play and benefit from them. And maybe that isn't true for all teams, but I think you're right that teams like Colorado, even like the Montreal Canadiens this year, primarily scored off the rush, especially uh, Max Domi's line. And then their power play was just brutal because they were, they were built to be a rush team. And then when it came to, settling down and trying to create cycle chances they just couldn't do it they they couldn't find a way to get into the slot but yeah I, I would love to see teams try to take advantage of that numbers game a little bit more in creating off the rush uh dare teams to be a bit more aggressive in penalty killing and then punish them for it i wonder if it's possible to do that long term just because teams kind of adjust and and they'll say like okay well we're, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna stop. It a little yeah, bit. You yeah. know, we're we're just gonna sit back real far. But but maybe it's one of those things where if you sit back too much, you're opening up other lanes to attack. Well, I would, know? I would think if anything, like it would be easier to pull off in the regular season where you're constantly playing different teams, like in in, in, a, in, yeah, a, in, in a postseason setting when you see a team seven times or whatever in in a two week span. It's much easier to like learn those tendencies and be like, okay, like by game three or four, we're gonna stop 
making these mistakes for like Habs is a great example like their power play was just so dreadful this year and probably a big reason why they didn't make the postseason and and I, they probably could have generated a couple extra goals at least that might have ultimately made a difference for them if they had tried to do something different I don't know just this idea of it, it is kind of goes to that um you know hockey nature of, of kind of being a bit more conservative and 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 how we view like if you give up uh, a shorthanded goal it's like oh man we just lost all the momentum that was such a backbreaking goal and, and so teams desperately try to avoid that stuff so i see why they don't try to get into that kind of cat and mouse back and forth game on the power play and instead just try to go like okay for the next two minutes where we at least know we're not going to give up any goals now if we score it'll be gravy but i'd love to see uh teams push the envelope a little bit more and maybe get into a bit of more of that uh trading scoring chances because you ultimately still have the five guys compared to the other teams four and you should theoretically be at an advantage regardless yeah absolutely it's it's definitely something i'd like to see at least a, a daring team try mm. right uh on a consistent basis it's pretty impressive that the burns have been able to pull it off in the playoffs i i think that's you know bruce cassidy as much as i think the bruins have always had good coaching during this uh this like era of bruins hockey uh, from beginning when Claude Julien was hired, I feel like Bruce Cassidy is just a very creative coach. Uh, whether that's trusting his players to try new things or creating new schemes, and his uh, could be you know partially his coaching staff to credit. I think it's uh, Joe Sacco on there, and um, there's another former player on there as well. I can't remember who it is. Like, off the top is, of my is, head. is it Rich Peverly on there on their staff? Uh, he might be. I feel like I see him on I the bench. Like uh, I'm going to have to look it up on hockey DB because I know that there's somebody on that team uh, on that coaching staff that I was like, ah, oh, he's there. Well, okay. While you look it up, I, I remember when, when they fired Claude Julian and, and brought in uh, Bruce Cassidy, I was like critical. And I was like, what are these guys doing? And, and I was giving Bruce Cassidy a hard time, but he's been, he's been great. And especially uh, Jay Pandolfo. Oh, Jay Pandolfo. That wouldn't be a power yeah, play guy, yeah. but yeah. Um, no, Cassidy has been great. And, and, his uh his his media sessions when he talks to the media it's it's like a small little petty thing but he's been he's been so good and and actually gives you insightful answers and talks about stuff and mm-hmm. clearly shows that he's thinking about certain things that sometimes you get the impression that other coaches might not be so uh no he's been awesome he's been a delight and um it's no surprise that the Bruins are are as kind of well oiled as they are you know we we were talking about how effective they've been off the rush and that's certainly true but in terms of their actual um like traditional setup in the offensive zone when they are on the, are on the power play. Something I also watch for that they've been so good at. We talked about how much they generate uh, these grade A scoring chances. And ultimately what they're trying to do is like they just move the puck around as much as possible east-west and just betting on the fact that the penalty kill will soften up at some point where they'll either stretch them out or get them out of position. And then all of a sudden, next thing you know, Patrice Bergeron is wide open from the slot with like a one-timer. You're just like, how the hell did that happen? And yeah, how it seems to happen every Bergeron? single time. But listen, like on the one hand, it's easy to be like, oh man, like this opposing penalty kill is, is, is stupid. They should have been focusing on that. But with the threats they have out there, and especially what I've noticed is that I think like Marshan and Tori Krug are two of the best cross seam passers in the league that I've seen in terms of getting it like from point, point A to point B uh, with a lot of force and right on the tape of the, receiving receiving shooter and so listen like those guys are threats themselves to shoot the puck so clearly opposing penalty killers are conscious of that and come out to them occasionally and then they are glad like willing passers and so that's how that happens and it's really fun to watch and you know the pastor knack has that one timer on the left circle and i mean they're blessed it's an embarrassment of riches and that's why they're so effective 
Yeah, and I think you hit on something with uh, Marshawn Krug, but especially like the Bruins have many multi-tool. Uh, high-end offensive players right like Bergeron I think primarily in like what he's best at is getting those high danger scoring chances right but he's also a really good playmaker not elite but really really good and Marshawn as a playmaker is like if he's not elite he's like right at that echelon and Pasternak definitely primarily a scorer but he can pass at a first line level mm-hmm. all all their guys who are primarily shooters can also pass and all their passers are pretty darn good shooters as well so that gives them a lot of versatility you know no defenseman can just stare down a player and choose to block the shot you always have to make a choice to either commit fully or you know like do I block the pass? Do I block the shot? Do I kind of go in the middle? Do I not make a decision? And as soon as you've got that hesitation, you're boned. Mm-hmm. And they have so many players who force that hesitation that it just makes their power play extremely hard to defend. Well, here's what And I'm... even strength, too. Yes, yes. No, for sure. I mean, they could score it all fast as the game. So let's talk more a bit about that, uh, you know, the five-on-five kind of matchup angle here because I'm really curious to see uh, – as this series starts out in Boston and as they have last change, what the matchups are, because, you know, as the year went along, uh, Craig Berube broke up O'Reilly and Tarasenko and split them into two separate lines. And, and I imagine that because clearly Tarasenko and Schwartz still represent the biggest scoring threats for the blues. I imagine Bruce Cassidy is going to want to get the Bergeron line and uh, Chara and McAvoy out against them as much as possible. And then I imagine that, Bruby is going to want to stay away from that matchup, both to free up Tarasenko, but also to get Ryan O'Reilly out against the the Bruins top line. So it's kind of seeing that interplay and how these teams go about it will be really interesting to me as well, because they are so both so deep and it's not necessarily the case where you're going to be worried about getting certain matchups too much. Cause you just kind of want to, you have the luxury of rolling four lines and, and trusting all your guys, but it's clear that in a series that we anticipate to be incredibly tight defensively with minimal chances and one goal here, they're ultimately probably being the difference in each of these games. You're going to want to maximize all those five on five shifts as much as possible. And so seeing which coach can dictate the terms of that will be interesting to watch. Yeah, it's one of those things where you wonder if a guy is going to aggressively line match mm-hmm. or force the other coach to do it. You know, like just I feel like the Bruins are one of those teams that like they can aggressively line match, but they can also just roll out their their guys and force the other team to to deal with it. And that's that's a huge advantage. I think the Blues are pretty good in that area as well. They've got like we talked about before, they've got a lot of depth. But against the Bruins, like you said, it's going to be very tough to find a matchup against that top that top line. And the crazy thing is, like that top line through the first round and a half in these playoffs was not very good. No, uh, they weren't scoring a lot at even strength. Uh, Marshawn, I thought was very good, but well, Pasternak uh, def- looked injured. I think yes, Pasternak was definitely hurt. Uh, Marshawn was really struggling on the defensive side. But as the playoffs have gone on, they've gotten healthier, which is like the opposite of what's supposed to happen, mm-hmm. and. Everyone seems to have rounded into form, and like we said, they were getting more in sync. It could just be that they're getting healthier. And, uh, man, that's just a dangerous line to try to handle. And I, I wonder if there's even a way to handle it. You know what I mean? Like It's almost one of those situations where if you're the opposing coach, do you kind of just sacrifice a line to them and hope that they don't do too much damage 
and then try to get all your best players on against their other lines. Mm. Like it's a that's a dangerous game to play in the Stanley Cup final, but even if, you know, maybe O'Reilly against Bergeron might be like the ultimate defensive stalemate, but yeah. Well, I think I think Barube will be comfortable using that fourth line against them and if, yeah. if, if you're if you're looking at the idea of like sacrificing a line and then trying to free up the other guys um but i imagine like i said in, in these games i don't know how aggressively i don't think they're gonna go completely out of their way and, and not use the bergeron line uh whenever tarasenko and schwartz aren't out there and purely just glue them to them but if you are the bruins i think you'd identify schwartz and tarasenko as the two biggest threats and the fact they play on the lot on the same line makes neutralizing them a bit easier from the perspective of just loading up your defense against them and then worrying about all the other guys after that. So I think that's what we'll see. And, 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 you know, Chara has had an up and down this postseason. I'd say much more down than up, even though the team's been winning, he's looked every bit his age and he's really, really, really struggled with speed. And Tarasenko might not be the worst matchup for him because his game is much more predicated on power than speed. Mm -hmm. And I think Chara's reach and his physicality might actually, in this rare instance, might actually be a decent matchup for them. Um, You know, Tarasenko is obviously a great offensive threat, but just in terms of the way he creates his offense off the rush, I feel like it'll be a bit easier for Chara to keep up with him than it has been uh, against some of these other teams where the blazing speed coming down the right wing has just made him look silly. Right, and uh, Tarasenko loves to do that little, like, faint, deke, and shoot through the legs move, right? Mm -hmm. Or, or, like, try to get around the defender and get a better shooting position. He loves to do those little dekes in the offensive zone. Kind of tough to deke around Zdeno Chara. You know, unless you're attacking with a lot of speed where you can get him moving laterally, it it's hard to move around that guy. He's got, you know, despite his age, one of the best stick checks in the league, and he's just big. You know, there's a, there's a lot to shoot around. So that is a matchup that I'd like to, to see play out, see who uh, has the advantage. Because you're right, I, I think that more than other star players in the league today, he probably has an advantage against Tarasenko. Well, and... I don't think this is groundbreaking stuff to say that the Blues are at their best when Tarasenko's at his best, considering he's mm. their most lethal offensive player. But it's pretty clear. I don't know. It depends he... if you're talking to Ken Hitchcock. Or not. <laughs> but as he got it going on in that series against San Jose, like it was, it was very clear. Obviously, the offense where he scored three goals and had the five assists in that series or one thing. But he did. It, it felt like he was just like his fingerprints were all over the, that series as as it got going on, and and he was creating so much stuff offensively for them. And and when he gets cooking like that, it takes their ceiling to a whole another level. And so getting him away from Bergeron and Chara will be pretty imperative. But obviously if he gets a lot of those minutes and he can still create stuff with them, that'll go a long way towards setting the blues up to win the other minutes and give them enough offense to actually carry them in the series. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think the blues can win if Vince Dunn isn't healthy? I mean, they did it against the sharks. True. but That was like one or two games, right? So, I mean, listen, we, you and I have talked about the show. I, I, I'm the leader of the Vince Dunn fan club. I think he is an awesome player that should be playing higher up their lineup and getting be getting more minutes. And his puck moving ability, especially against this Bruins forecheck uh, and how much they create in that regard, will go a long way. And I, I'm not sure are there are there any reports right now in terms of whether he'll be ready to go or not. 
Uh, he's listed as day to day, but mm. I, I mean more like even if he plays, if he's hindered by right. any in a significant way, right? I think he's just been so good in these playoffs, you know. And I looked at, uh, you know, obviously San Jose had their own injuries, which helped the Blues prevail over them in the end. But I don't think you can play Jay Bowmeister twenty four minutes against the Boston Bruins. I just don't think it's a thing that you can do and have success. No. Well, and and done. Like I like this Blues uh, defense core, but Dunn provides them with a much needed kind of like dynamic element where mm-hmm. he's like a bit of a wild card and can create stuff randomly that they don't have from a lot of these other players as effective as they are. And and so I agree with that. And and that's another note that I had here. That's something that I've noticed in this postseason with a lot of these teams that have been successful. And and if others are paying attention out there, they'll notice that all these teams have like. They generally devote their third pairing to guys who um, are kind of go against that convention. Like it felt like for a long time, third pairing defensemen would be these like lumbering uh, throwback defensive defensemen that you just get out there every so often. And then now, whether it's Vince Dunn, whether like the Sharks had Joe Kim Ryan, I mean, look at the Bruins, their third pairing for a while has been Matt Grizzlick and Connor Clifton and, and, like Dean Kukan on on Columbus, like there's so many of these guys that are just these slick, undersized uh, offensive defensemen. And I've been thinking, like, because typically, assuming you're relying on your top pair or your top two pairs to play against the other team's best players and have them out for all those situations, you're gonna have a sheltered third pair that's gonna be playing softer minutes, whether it's in terms of zone starts or whether it's in terms of tertiary competition. So wouldn't it make sense that you'd have? guys who could actually create offensively in those softer minutes as opposed to just wasting them on your Roman Polacks and your Robert Bertuzzo's of the world. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> I mean, I think we are in a hundred percent agreement on that. <laughs> just like, unfortunately very little for me to, <laughs> well, and, and, and I guess the, the point is that, uh, the Matt Grizzlicks and the Vince Duns of the world, you probably shouldn't even be on your third pairing. They should probably be playing top four minutes because they're very, very good. This is true. I mean, I mean, we've been beating that drum forever. I mean, give those guys a chance. It's uh, it's usually like there's there's always cases where a guy that looks like he might be an analytics darling or whatever uh, can't hack the the tougher minutes. Um, like what were the wars a couple summers ago? About uh, I forget the name of the defenseman, Finnish defenseman in Dallas, Julius Honka. Yes, and uh, clearly that hasn't worked out. He hasn't really had much of a chance, but I think it's fair to say he's not going to be a top four defenseman. Mm. But then there are guys that, you know, have good numbers and seem to be able to hack it in tougher minutes. And that seems to happen fairly consistently in the NHL these days. Uh, You look at a a guy that was given spot duty for forever and Mark Barbario and then, you know, Montreal tried him out on the third pair. He was excellent they moved him up to the second pair he was excellent he went over to colorado and they had put him on the first pair because of injuries he was still excellent anyway i I believe he had a bad year last year i don't remember but uh i think he's a player that maybe the prime of his year was wasted in just not being given a chance well i think yeah having like identifiable skills whether it's skating or puck movement or, or or something um is like what you're looking for in terms of translating it into higher opportunities up the lineup and it's clear those guys have it you know you're mentioning you're mentioning Bowmeister there and, and how much he's playing and I think probably the Blues most important player or highest leverage player here is gonna be Colton Pareko. I thought he was their best mm-hmm. skater 
against the Sharks. He led them in ice time. He did it primarily playing with Jay Bomeister and playing against the Sharks' top line. And when he was out there, San Jose wasn't really able to create anything because Colton Pareko is that good. And especially in terms of using that reach and, and dictating the terms of the play through the neutral zone with the transitions and watching him play is such a delight because it just seems unfair that a guy with that six six frame of his can move as well as he does and also possesses the offensive skill he does with the puck on his stick. Like I think Brandon Carlo, who is roughly the same body type, I'd say, also moves very, very well for a player of his size. But then sometimes you watch him with the puck on his stick and he looks like he literally just learned how to play hockey. And it's kind of funny to watch. And then you watch Preko and you're like, oh my God, this guy has the skills of Vince Dunn. He's just like seven or eight inches taller or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's going to be interesting to watch. So would you say Pareko is your like X factor for the Blues? Yeah, because I think that they're... Craig Brube is going to want to have him out against that Bruins top line as much as possible. And if he's assuming he's able to do so and assuming, see, the problem is, is that they're so committed to having Bo Meester out there with him that that's like kind of the scary part, because that means Bo Meester probably will be playing those types of volume, volume of minutes that you were suggesting the Blues can't get away with. Um, so that's not ideal, but at least it means Pareko's goes out there and he gives them the best chance, I think, with his like ability to disrupt plays and get into passing lanes and and I think make it uncomfortable for the Bruins top line to do what they like to do in the offensive zone with it I think he gives them the best chance of actually neutralizing that a little bit and slowing them down at least enough to give the Blues a fighting chance so I, th- I do think I think if he plays up to his capability and he leads them in ice time I think that gives them the best chance to win this yeah yeah I think that's a that's a good pick who would be your x-factor for the Bruins Sorry, I'm interviewing you in, on your own podcast now. Oh, I'm like Jeff Merrick. Uh, that's tough. I mean, it, it seems like a cop-out to say Tuka Rask continuing to play as well as he has because I think that it goes without saying that whichever goalie plays better, that that team's probably going to win this series. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I guess I guess it, 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 might be, it might be Chara's capability to hold up against Tarasenko and actually have an advantage in that matchup from a power perspective like we – hypothesized about i don't know like what do you what do you think from from the blues angle uh from the bruins angle one guy that i want to watch is tory krug mm. i feel like he gets a lot of undue criticism and it, you know that chara tarasenko matchup is going to be interesting but then there's all those other good blues players who've been so good offensively this this uh playoffs uh, I, i'm really interested to see how tory krug holds up because i think he's a lot better without the puck than people tend to believe mm-hmm. yeah i mean he's just a good player He's a very good player. Yeah, very, very like he's he's sneaky. He he's chippy. He he's a good puck mover. Amazing offensively. He's creative. Uh, there's a lot to respect about Troy Krug's game. Well, see, I think like when people talk about uh, hockey sense, I feel like it's a mm-hmm. very nebulous term. Like people just throw that around. It's like okay, like what is that? How do we actually identify that? What does that mean? I feel like when you watch a guy like Troy Krug, you're like, okay, I I I guess that that is what hockey sense is. It just seems like he's in the right place at the right time. And it yep. seems like he's like anticipating the play and sort of has a good feel for where the puck's going to go and what's going to happen. And, and I imagine that's what people are alluding to when they talk about hockey sense. Yeah, I mean, when I would talk about hockey sense, it would be like Ovechkin always being open on the power play. Mm. You know, the kind of things that are mystifying. That you're like, everybody knows the puck's going to go to Ovechkin eventually. And yet he always finds a way to be open. It's just he knows 
how to get lost. You know, he knows how to get lost, how to get open, where the spots are going to be, uh, that kind of stuff. It, it, yeah, it, it's nebulous for sure. But yeah, that's uh, Tory Krug definitely applies. He's he's an applicable guy. I feel like Charlie Coyle is probably another guy that I'd be interested to see if he can carry his uh, his good playoff performance through to the Stanley Cup final. Well, yeah, I imagine uh, you know him and Johansson have been so good this postseason mm-hmm. for the Bruins as, as deadline acquisitions, and 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 I mean that's not necessarily the sexy answer, but it does feel like this series is going to be so tight. So whichever team gets continues to get the secondary scoring they've gotten so far this postseason, like that'll go a long way if the Blues either from that third line or from that fourth line are able to continue getting some uh, unexpected offense or whether Coyle and, and Johansson can keep it going, like that's going to go a long way towards deciding this as well. Cause we just, I think we assume that the top guys might not cancel each other out, but like they're going to bring their a game and they're going to get the offense from all those uh, household names. So it's going to come down to some of that supporting cast. Yeah. And you know, this isn't a storyline that many people have mentioned probably because he's been a healthy scratch for most of the playoffs, but David Backus is in the Stanley Cup final against the Blues. Mm. That's a weird one. I think we're gonna. Yeah, don't worry. the 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 broadcast teams are gonna make sure to yeah, to point that out. They'll be on it. Yeah, don't worry. Stuff like that does not escape <laughs> them. They're on it, man. That's um, true. It'll be in the game notes. Yeah. <laughs> and then they'll be like, every time something happens, they'll pan to him in the press box. Oh man! Uh, if the Bru- if the Bru- I kind of hope the Bruins come out strong to start the series. I don't. I really don't care either way who wins or how this goes. But just so that we don't have to hear about how them having ten days off or whatever was a big deal, even though like the Blues themselves have had a week off. Yeah, well, the Bruins had their their scrimmage last night, mm. so I don't. That'll be enough to get them in shape, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. I, I feel like the other thing that maybe goes in the Bruin or sorry in the Blues favor a little bit is uh I think the Blues have a much better fourth line than the Bruins do. Mm-hmm. Like Sean Corrales okay, but uh Nordstrom doesn't do anything for me and neither does Wagner. Yeah. So uh, that that's an area where I look at the Blues and I'm like, okay, well maybe they could lose a battle in like somewhere else in the middle of the lineup, but that fourth line matchup is going to go their way. Yeah. No, for sure. And, you know, on the goaltending thing, we always talk a lot about Rask and how good he's been. And, and Bennington has been up and down. Um, you know, his overall <laughs> numbers aren't necessarily anything great. But I did notice that, you know, he obviously he shut the door against the Sharks. It was easy in, in that game six with the offensive talent they had out of, out of the lineup. But he gave up, what, two goals combined in the final three games of that series. And, and he also, in the final couple games against the Stars and the Jets, really turned it on and shut the door on those teams and i'm not saying he's like clutch or anything or has this uh dna that that, that'll help him get it done when it matters most but he's just been he's been good and we've talked so much about rask and how great he's been and and how he'll probably win the con smythe if the bruins wind up winning this series but uh bennington's ability to keep it going is going to be something to watch for as well considering that he's coming up on 70 or so games now played this year if you combine the nhl and ahl stuff so and he's it's clearly territory that he's never uh physically had to uh venture into before so i imagine that's an element of this as well yeah for sure and i feel like bennington it's it's a blessing and a curse but uh, right now because he's playing well and his team's winning it's gonna be like oh he has ice in his veins yeah. he's so calm cool and collected and next year when he struggles i'm like he doesn't care no and i've i've, I've seen that broadcast uh the opinion of goalies before so mm-hmm. that's my prediction if he struggles next year at all it'll be that uh, bennington doesn't care enough not emotional <laughs> enough but hopefully he's still good at puck handling because, boy, does he like to play the puck. Um, Got to play that puck. So what's your pick? Oh, man, my pick. Uh, 
I I think I don't want to, but I I just can't see the Bruins losing. I think they're just so much better at controlling the passing game mm. that that's going to be the key to this one. They're they're so unbelievably good defensively at at keeping those passes out of the slot and blocking them, and it's just really tough to generate really good chances against them. Yeah. Yeah, I have the Bruins in seven. Hopefully we get that uh, Game 7 overtime you were asking for. Yeah, that'd be great. I'd love to see Game 7 overtime. Even if it's the Bruins winning, it'd be extremely exciting. Yeah. I mean, I think this will be a tight series, and I I don't think anyone would be surprised if the Blues won it, but I do think the Bruins possess a slightly higher gear, and I think it'll... uh, It'll make the difference in the series, but I'm excited. Like these are two really, really good teams, and this is a a matchup that's fitting of a Stanley Cup final because these two teams over the past 25 to 30 games, as we said, were probably the two best teams in the league. So it's cool to see them uh, duke it out here in the seven game final for uh, for all the marbles. Yeah, for sure. Oh, last last question, Dimitri. Mm-hmm. Yep. If the Blues win, the first person they pass the cup to is probably Jay Bowmeister, right? Uh. Because he's the old guy. Yeah, but Colton Preco will carry it for him. <laughs> nice one. Nice one. Damn. But do the Bruins pass it to Backus first? Oh, uh, only if it only if the clinching game is in St. Louis. Oh, will would the would the Blues fans cheer for that? Uh, or would they a do little just, bit maybe? Yeah, you think like the the golf clap? Yeah, like there'll be like one slow tear rolling down their cheeks. all right all right uh plug some stuff man can i let the people know Uh, yeah so i've got i'm gonna have a big preview for this series coming out this weekend on sportsnet and uh, i haven't got too much going else going on because it's you know the slowdown of the of the season i'll uh, a couple articles a week on the stanley cup finals on sportsnet but uh, other than that it's uh, almost vacation time yeah well, we've got the draft and free agency as, as well, so that'll be fun to watch for. But you're right; it's uh, we're winding down here, and it's been it's been a marathon, but it's been fun. And thanks for coming on the show and doing this preview with me. I wouldn't have done it with anyone else, and uh, we'll chat with you soon. It's my pleasure, man. Thanks for having me, Cheers. as always. Cheers. The Hockey Pedio Cast with Dmitri Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockeypediocast. Mm-hmm.